right, let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 3. We're looking at the first six verses of the third chapter of Judges. And uh, as we do here at ECPC, we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word, so I'm going to invite you to stand now. Let me remind you, we, we stand... Um, as, as a way, it's not the only way of just involving, uh, you know, our, our whole body, like putting as much attention uh, as we can possibly put on God's word and um, just getting into a posture of being receptive to it. So this is not the, it's not a perfunctory sort of religious obligation to stand at the reading of God's word, but we're trying to just really press into it and um, embrace it as much as we possibly can. So we're Looking at the first six verses of Judges chapter 3, so please follow along as I read this for us. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Y'all can have a seat. And I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, you tell us that we must receive your word or else we don't have life. And it's not just life, uh, survival, or getting by. It's thriving. It's life to the fullest. That's what you want for us because you love us. And so you invite us and you command us to embrace your word as the most hearty, the most nourishing, and the most vital food for our souls. We don't live by bread alone. We live by the by the Bible, by what God reveals to us in Scripture. And so we pray that you would give us voracious appetites for what you're showing us here this morning, uh, that we would savor the revelation of God, because ultimately it's, it's the means by which you nourish us with your mercy. That's what you desire. You desire to show us mercy, even in the discipline Even in the testing, it's all about your fatherly love. And so we pray that you would cause us to revel in that and to cling to that uh, and to desperately rely on that all the days of our life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So back in 2006, when Carrie was pregnant with our first child, um, I wanted to get ready to be be a dad. It's the first time ever really being a dad. So uh, I thought I, I better prepare so I signed up for this class at Presbyterian Hospital. It's now called Novant Healthcare. And the class was called Daddy Boot Camp. And uh, I went into this class. It was a day-long class on a Saturday, uh, expecting it to be kind of a skills rodeo, like they would have 
babies there for us and we'd learn how to change their diapers and maybe they'd have a stopwatch and uh, they'd see how fast you could change the diaper and then, you know, like a rodeo, you'd pull your hands away and they'd clock you, see how fast you could get. Or maybe swaddling tests, like uh, here's, here's a baby, see how fast and, and how tightly you can swaddle the baby and they'd have, you know, ways of measuring uh, your success at swaddling. Or maybe they would have a um, like some props uh, set up that, that resembled the TSA security line at the airport and they'd give you a stroller and a bunch of baby equipment and you'd have to break it down and put it on the, the, the x-ray you know, conveyor belt thing and they would, they would test you with, with these kinds of essential dad skills. Uh, but that's not what it was. Uh, it, it was not that at all. It was uh, basically like an AA group. Uh, we all sat in a circle and we all went around and we said, hi, my, my name is... Tyler, and um, I'm afraid of being a dad. That's basically what we did. Like, I have all these feelings of inadequacy and, and insufficiency, and, I, and I'm really scared because there's, there's this precious creature being knit together in my wife's womb, and, and I, I love this, this creature, but man, there are so many things I can't control, and I'm, I'm terrified. And so this, uh, this lady leading the class, she made us talk about our feelings, and especially our feelings of inadequacy. And then the other big takeaway, uh, and she, she hammered this, and she re reiterated this quite often. She said, and, and here's the thing, when your baby is born, uh, this baby will most likely cry, you know, when they're hungry or their tummy's hurting or something. And, and she said this so many times. She said, you are not allowed to shake the baby to get it to stop, all right? So, <laughs> so essentially the class was, uh, let's do this vulnerable thing where we talk about our our fears and our inadequacies, and uh, let's talk about our unhealthy natural inclinations, because apparently, especially men, want to shake things to get them to be quiet. And so that's what we talked about. Uh, learning the warfare of fatherhood meant facing your fears and confronting your unhealthy natural instincts. And in this way, the instructor of the Daddy Boot Camp class tested us, and she helped us prepare for the parental battles ahead. And that's what God's doing here in Judges 3. He's testing his people. He really emphasizes that here at the beginning of the third chapter. And he's teaching them war. He wants them to know war, the, the holy warfare that, that God himself is waging and that he is involving his people in. And he's wanting to test them and teach them war by confronting their fears, specifically their, their fear of man, which we can all relate to, and he wants to confront their un healthy, natural instincts, their instinct to be just like all the other nations around them and to just, just conform and capitulate to all of the, the natural enticing things that they're going to encounter in the land of Canaan. And this testing and teaching starts with a lesson on discernment. God wants his people first and foremost to be able to discern the difference between life and death, what is healthy and good versus what is unhealthy and bad. So it says in verses 1 and 2, God left certain nations in the promised land to test his people. It says that, that he wants them to know war. He wants them to realize they're living in a war zone. This is not a luxury cruise. They're, they're on a battleship. And they are, they are moving through, through you know, war waters. And it's, it's going to be intense. So what does this mean? God left certain nations there to test them. 
Well, my, my family and I have recently been binge watching the show uh, on, um, well, I guess it's Amazon Prime, but originally put out by History Channel Alone. Y'all familiar with this show? It's like a survival expert show. And they have 10, con- con- 10 contestants, 10 people who know something about how, how to survive in the bush, in the wilderness. And they send them out into these really remote places, and, and they're, they're there alone. So that's the whole premise of the show. And obviously, a big point of emphasis in the show is, can the contestants figure out a way to get food, right? Can they, can they catch fish? And also, can they forage? Can they walk through the woods and find, you know, edible mushrooms? Now, here's the thing. If, if you're going to survive out in the wilderness, you have to be able to discern the difference between an edible mushroom and a poisonous mushroom. Realize, and, and, and the longer you're out there and, and the more you experience, you know, hunger, the hungrier you get, um, the more you might be, be looking at certain mushrooms, certain, certain plants, and, and you might want to eat them, but that could, that could lead to you getting very sick or dying. So, so discernment, understanding that there are going to be things that you're going to want to pursue, things that are very alluring to you. But understanding that those things might not be the healthiest things for you to ingest and to put in your body. That's what God's doing. He's saying there's going to be a lot of things in the land of Canaan, a lot of other people groups and other nations, and they're going to look enticing to you. Their ways of living are going to be alluring to you. And you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tested to go after those things. But it leads to death. I get that you're hungry for those things. But you need to be able to discern the difference between life and death. And we're all familiar with this. We all know that there are natural inclinations and and natural instincts and appetites in us um, that we feel very strongly. And yet we know we shouldn't act on those things. For example, we we all feel this natural inclination toward greed. We we just want more stuff. We want to hoard and have stuff. And God says that is not actually healthy for you. The the inclination to be greedy is very strong. You feel a very intense desire for more, better, bigger stuff. But it's not going to make you happy. In fact, you're going to have to manage all that stuff and maintain all that stuff, and it's going to break down. You're going to have to fix that stuff, and you're going to have to monitor that stuff, and it's going to stress you out. You're going to be anxious and troubled by many things if you give yourself over to greed. What about gossip? We all feel this natural inclination to talk about other people when they're not around, right? We want to gossip. Or what about the the tendency in us uh, where we want to throw ourselves pity parties and feel really sorry for ourselves? That's a very natural, very strong inclination. Or the inclination to be defensive. When, when, When someone from your perspective, is kind of attacking you or pointing out something about you that, that makes you uncomfortable. You want, to, you want to lash out at them. You want to be defensive. It's a very natural instinct. The natural instinct to be self-righteous. The natural instinct to be resentful. All of the natural inclinations of lust. See, all these things are strong feelings, strong inclinations, and God says, but they, they lead to death. So you've got to be able to discern that first. In order to fight the the good fight, you have to first discern what is actually good for you. So the people of of God back in the days of Judges, they're they're dominated by by what these other nations around them are doing, what the social norms and what the political trends of all these neighboring nations are doing. They've, They've got this strong desire 
to hitch their wagons to these other nations' narratives of greatness. Well, the Canaanites are doing it this way. The Hivites are doing it this way. I mean, have you seen how prosperous the Jebusites are? And if we just followed suit, if we just conformed to the way they do it, then maybe we could be like them. See, they're they're comparing themselves to all these other nations because they're adopting their their narratives of greatness. And God says, "I, I get that you feel this natural inclination, but you need to discern how deadly it is. And you know, it's been this way from the beginning. You go back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Specifically in Genesis 3, you discover that there is a war going on. When God creates the first human beings, Adam and Eve, they find themselves in the midst of a holy war. There is this this fallen angel, Satan, who manifests himself in in the the perfect garden of Eden. And, And he's there under God's sovereign authority to test Adam and Eve, right? And they have to discern the difference between what God says is good and what this serpent, the serpent is telling them is good. The serpent is presenting them with ideas that are very attractive to them. He takes them to that, that fruit tree and he says, well, look at this tree. I know God said not to eat of it, but have you really thought through why? I mean, this, this tree is good for, for, for knowledge. It, it's pleasing to look at. It, it, looks, it looks appetizing. Why would God not want you to eat this? And they fall victim to that, don't they? They, they don't discern how deadly it would be to disregard the command of God, and they follow the advice of the serpent. And this narrative just keeps on going. In the very next chapter, Genesis 4, God comes to Cain, and he says, I know that there is a very appetizing idea to kill your brother, right? To take matters into your own hands, your, your feelings of insecurity and inadequacy. You want to you cope with those feelings by murdering your brother. And that, that inclination is crouching at your door. It's right there. Right? It's prowling around your, your house, and it wants, it wants you to let it in. But you have to resist it. You have to discern how deadly it is. And we need to clarify that discernment is not predicated on self-reliance. When, when God says, discern what is good for you, discern what is life-giving, as opposed to what is deadly, he's not saying, now, now just pull your up, yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Like adopt some posture of self-sufficiency and get out there and discern things and fight on your own. No, he's saying discernment has always been trusting in God, not leaning on your own understanding, but trusting God and listening to God even when what God is saying doesn't make sense to you. That's what discernment is. Discernment is listening to God, listening to God and adopting what he says and appropriating it for your life in a very personal, very relevant way, and leaning on him and not on your own understanding. So what are some examples from from Scripture? Well, Moses is mentioned in this passage, right? The commands of God were given to the the people of of Israel back in the days of the judges. Those, Those laws were originally given through Moses. So let's use him as an example. How did Moses exercise the spiritual gift of discernment? How was God authoring discernment in the life of Moses? Well, we're told in the book of Hebrews that that Moses had to make this critical decision in his life. A very key moment of discernment for for Moses was he was raised in the palace life of Egypt. And in a summation statement, God says, Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the slave class of Egypt. Because those were, believe it or not, the people of God. Those were the people that God wanted to bless and show mercy to. And he, he rejected 
the, the luxurious life living in the palace of Egypt. And in order for Moses to make that decision, he had to discern something that, that frankly looks very senseless to us. I mean, we, according to our worldly thinking, would tell Moses, you would do better to stay in a position of power and luxury in the palace of Egypt. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons you should not put your lot in with the Israelites. Number one, they are terrible people. If you become their leader, if, if you hitch your wagon to the Israelites, they will do nothing but grumble against you and complain against you. They will be such a thorn in your side. How, how inconvenient and unpleasant does that feel? And Moses is aware of that. That's why he tries to turn God down when God hits him up with this job offer in Exodus, right? But Moses, he's led by the Spirit. He does something that is not sensible according to worldly standards or worldly logic. And he, he sees that this is what he should do. He should, he should leave the, the materialistic luxury life in Egypt and all of that, all of that sense of pedigree and, and control that he could feel if he remained in a position of power. And he's going to choose rather to be mistreated with the people of God because that's what God's telling him to do. What about the, uh, the lady in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14? Later today, you can go read Mark, chapter 14, and you'll read the story about this woman. In that particular chapter, she's unnamed. For what it's worth, I think this is Mary, sister of Lazarus and Martha. But we're not told in Mark 14 what her name is. Um, but what we are told is that this woman, um, against or opposed to all social norms, all customs, all traditions, all preferences of decorum, she walks into this leadership team meeting with the rabbi Jesus and his apostles. And, and women in that day were not allowed just to waltz into these meetings, and especially this woman, because what she does is she takes this very expensive perfume and she, it looks like, wastes it on Jesus. And the church leaders say, this woman lacks discernment. This woman is wasting this resource. This resource could have been sold and that money could have been used to provide for the poor. That's what they say. They chastise her. And yet Jesus interprets this woman's actions as she is doing what is right. She has actually discerned something that is far more important than you apostolic leaders are aware of. She's been listening to me. She's been hearing me and embracing what I've been saying, which is that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I am going to, to receive the scorn and contempt and hatred of, of the Jewish leadership and they're going to crucify me. And so she has, believe it or not, just anointed me for my death. She's getting me ready to do the thing I keep telling you that I'm going to do. Because as senseless as it sounds to you, this is the redemptive mission of the Messiah, and she's been listening. And that really is what discernment is, listening to Jesus, plain and simple. Discernment means you've listened to the voice of the good shepherd. That's what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me, and they follow me. And that's really important because in another place, Jesus says, I send my sheep out into the midst of a world of wolves. How, how nonsensical does that sound? How, how does the good shepherd call himself good and then go on to say, I'm going to send my, my precious, dim-witted little lambs out into a world of wolves? But that's what he says. And he is the good shepherd. And you're going to have to discern that by the power of the Spirit. 
and because you're listening more to the voice of Jesus than you are to your own fears or natural inclinations. That's what Jesus says. And if God is sending us out into a world of wolves, that means we're going to have to experience some hardship. That means there's going to be some intense testing. We're we're going to bump up against what we're afraid of and what we're intimidated by. Long story short, we're going to have to operate with another spiritual gift called discipline. That's our second point. From discernment, we, we segue to discipline. God's people will have to resist and experience and receive the discipline of God in the face of intense testing. Look at the intensity of the testing back here in Judges chapter 3. It says in verse 3, there are five lords of the Philistines. There are the Canaanites. There are the Sidonians. And there are the Hivites. So in other words, they are surrounded by all kinds of sundry temptations. There's there's such a variety. If, If the Philistines don't tempt them, the Canaanites will. If the Canaanites don't tempt them, the Sidonians will. And and there are varying intensity levels of temptation. It's kind of like putting me in the store REI. I'm I'm surrounded by things that are enticing to me. I'm I'm severely tempted and tried and tested if you put me in an outdoor store. And, And it's varying degrees of intensity. Like if you put me in the apparel section, don't get me wrong, I'm enticed. I mean, there are like $150 articles of clothing that I want to buy. But I could probably survive that. But then if you took me to the backpacking and camping section, oh boy, now all bets are off. I'm, I'm probably going to walk out of there with at least a headlamp. In fact, a few years ago, I was having lunch with Rob Pereira, and I think he did this on purpose. He had me meet him for lunch right next to REI. And I told him, I confessed this to him as we were sitting there having lunch. I said, brother, this is hard for me. It's hard for me to even pay attention to you right now because REI is right there. And I think I even said to him, you have to hold me accountable. You have to not let me walk into that store. And then we get in our cars and he just drives off. So I went in there and bought a headlamp. Because <laughs> I can't control myself. See, there are different levels of intensity. We're surrounded. And that's where God has his people. In, in his sovereign wisdom. There, there are these various people groups that are offering things that are unhealthy and enticing to the Israelites. And they have to, they have to weather these tests. They have to experience the discipline of God to shepherd them through these really hard situations. And it's more than merely enticing. Look at verse 6. We we see this statement, they took their daughters as wives and they gave their daughters as wives to the sons of the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and all these surrounding nations. And, And why that was so bad is because they went on to commit idolatry, which which is spiritual adultery. It's like taking other gods as mistresses. And God says, you can't can't do that. Because Yahweh is a monogamous, exclusive God, like like many of you in your marriages. He he says, no, I I, I cannot tolerate you having mistress gods. The interracial marriages is not the issue. We see all throughout the Bible. We see all throughout the Bible. In fact, prior to this, uh, Rahab, the the woman of Jericho, she was adopted into the family of God. It's It's not a racial or ethnic divide. It's it's the spiritual adultery that God says is deadly. See, the the critical issue here is that the Israelites have integrated their identity with the social trends and political movements of Canaan. They've, They've embedded their identity in that culture as opposed to embedding their identity in Yahweh. Their their union with Yahweh is at a minimum jeopardized and threatened. And, And frankly, it's fractured and it's breaking because they're opting 
to serve other gods. They're exchanging their identity in Yahweh and immersing their identity in the popular opinions of the world at their time. And it's death. Here's a really good example of this. It's, it's Black History Month. And, and, and aside from that, I, I just, I don't know why, but God has been telling me things just through different other things I'm reading and, and seeing online about Jackie Robinson. And in 1947, what you have to understand is that the popular trend in 1947 America, the popular worldly trend, and in fact, the legislation was segregation and racism and hatred. That was the law of the land. That was the popular trend. And this guy, Jackie Robinson, was put right into the middle of it. And so the, the world would, would say, you just need to capitulate to that. You need to conform to that. You, you need to be a segregationist. You need to get in the ways and the rhythms of hatred and racism. But this guy, Ricky Branch, who worked for the Brooklyn Dodgers, he said, no, Jackie, uh, you need to live in this high-stress, emotionally charged, intense testing environment, and you must not give in to it. You must not play by the world's rules. You must resist all of the most logical and natural and emotional inclinations to become like the world. You cannot do things the way the world does them. That's how we're going to overcome this racism and this hatred and this systemic affliction. That's how we're going to do it. Fear and emotion would say, well, I can't beat them, so I must join them. I must, I must conform to the ways of the world to just accept it. But God would say, that's not how, that's not how, truth works. That's not how life and life to the fullest works. God says, instead of conforming to the world around you, instead of living by your natural inclinations and living by fear, you must live by faith. Specifically, faith in the fact that I love you. Sounds, sounds so basic. But, but never, never lose your grip on this basic, profound, absolutely necessary truth. Jesus loves you, this you know, for the Bible tells you so. That's the most profound thing you can possibly believe in because the perfect love of Jesus is what will cast out all fear. The, the, the expulsive power of this higher affection for Jesus because you love because he first loved you is how you will overcome your, your natural inclinations that are unhealthy. God says, look at my love. Look at my love. Hebrews 12, he says, my love, for example, it involves discipline. God says in Hebrews 12, discipline is why you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. If there is no discipline, if there's no testing in your life, then the honest truth is you're not legitimate children. You're illegitimate. If you're allowed to just do whatever feels right to you, then you're illegitimate children. But God says, no, I've adopted you. I love you too much to just let you do life on your terms. So I'm going to discipline you. Hebrews 12 says, look, we can all agree that in the moment, discipline and testing is painful, it's hard, it's difficult, it's unpleasant, but the hallmark of God's love is discipline, and it yields fruitfulness. And believe it or not, it is in our greatest tests, and it's in our greatest struggles, and it's in our most intense decisions to resist our natural fears and, and appetites that we discover true joy. Even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, here's the perennial illustration of this. It's in your greatest struggles and in your most intense self-denial moments that you are brewing true joy. The perennial illustration is children. Anybody who has kids has had to overcome some pronounced 
versions of selfishness. It doesn't mean they've completely graduated from it, but they've had to deny themselves. And they've been through pain. I've never been a pregnant woman, but I've heard that from the moment you are pregnant, you get this thing called morning sickness. And you, you can't just say, well, let's just not have this kid because that's, that's too hard. No, no, you, you, you endure. And then this kid is born and man, it's a whirlwind. <laughs> There's a lot of work. And you got to get up at two in the morning to tend to the kid. And it doesn't stop there. I mean, you got to pay for this kid to go to college. You've got to weather all of these hardships, all of these unknowns, all of these difficulties. But if you talk to any parents around the world, throughout all history, and you ask them, what, what is your delight? Like, what's one thing in life that you, you know you experience joy in this thing? They're going to say, my kids. Man, kids are the biggest burden in the world, and they are the, the greatest delight. It's, it's like a universal truth. It's amazing. And God says, that's what following me is like. It's not just about enduring the, the discipline and, and educating yourself and discerning. It's, it's about experiencing the joy of your master, the joy of your father who is ushering, in, ushering you into his delight. You see this in a big way in stories like the stories of, of King David. You know, you, you read King David's life story and at first glance, it looks like the Jerry Springer show. It's just a ton of drama and dysfunction and high-stress moments and intense emotional stress. You see, specifically, David, uh, early on in his story, he's serving under a very bad leader. There's this guy named Saul who's hired David to come work at the palace. And Saul, in, in no uncertain terms, is an abusive leader. He's extremely hostile. He's manipulative. He's a bad, bad leader. And the pressure to respond to that leader with contempt would be very strong. To, to, to respond to Saul, if you're David, to respond with resentment and bitterness, I mean, that's the natural inclination, right? The, 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 the pressure to live by fear, to, to never ever take any chances that put you in such a vulnerable position ever again, that's a very strong inclination. And David felt that, and he had family members, namely his sister's sons, his nephews. They, they put intense pressure on him to, to respond to, to Saul in these ways of the world, these ways of the flesh. And at every turn, David resisted that. He did what doesn't come naturally. He didn't rely on himself. He didn't trust in himself. He kept listening to God, and what God kept telling David was, your job is not to take vengeance on Saul. And your job is not to harbor bitterness and resentment towards Saul. Your job is to forgive, even when it seems totally absurd and difficult. Your, your job is to honor him, not because he is intrinsically honorable, but because I've stationed him as the first king of Israel, and you will refer to him as the Lord's anointed. You'll forgive him, you'll honor him, and you will live not with hostility and resentment, you will live with patience and kindness. See, God's ways aren't, aren't our ways. And they're going to be mysterious to us, but they're going to lead to life and life to the fullest. And God says, in this way, you will discover joy. You know, people who give in to the ways of the world, I think we can all acknowledge this. It's pretty obvious. People who live by the, the algorithms of the world, they don't have joy. So the algorithm of the world is materialism. How many materialists have joy? Have you done the math on it? Like, we all want to go after more stuff and be greedy, but it doesn't lead to joy. It's kind of miserable. Uh, living by comparison and wanting to strive for popularity doesn't breed joy. 
It breeds anxiety. It breeds drama. It breeds gossip. But it doesn't breed joy. Fretting all the time. Just watching the news all the time. The 24-hour news feed telling you, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. Live by fear. That doesn't breed joy. That's miserable. And what's underneath our cravings and our capitulating to all these things is that we feel weak. We feel small. And we're constantly trying to transcend our smallness. Right? We're trying to feel like something bigger than, than the sheep that Jesus says we are. So through materialism, if I just get more stuff, I'll feel big. Just, just one more purchase, and that'll, that'll satisfy me, make me feel big. Or if, if I get people to like me, if I can be popular, then I'll feel impressive. I'll feel, I'll feel big. Or, or fixating on fear. That's about trying frantically to feel in control. If I could just have all the facts, all the data, if I could just constantly watch the news, then I'll have a, a sense of what's going on. I may not be able to really do much, but I can feel kind of like I'm moving toward control. Or, or, or an, ability to, an ability to at least predict. And that will, that will help me not feel afraid anymore. And it never works. God says the only way to learn war, learn the holy war that, that God is shepherding you through, and the only way to be, be successfully, uh, successful at navigating that war is, is to fix your eyes on the fact that you have a good shepherd who wants to lead you through that war. Which means you're going to have to embrace the role of being a sheep. You're not ever going to be in a position to call the shots. You're not ever going to be the big, impressive main character of the story. The shepherd is. And you're going to fixate not on yourself and not on your fear and not on how you feel. You're going to fixate on the fact that you have a high priest who has this amazing love for you. For example, this high priest chose to become a human being. He didn't have to make that choice. God could have remained away. He didn't have to enter into the drama and dysfunction of our broken, twisted, corrupt world. It's a hard world to live in. And God said, I'll move toward that pain and brokenness. I'll put myself right in the midst of it. And I'll model for my people how they should posture themselves. He didn't come as a full-grown man. He didn't come as a, a powerful king. He came as a little baby born in Bethlehem, raised in a a backwards place called Nazareth. Jesus says, follow me. I am the high priest who can sympathize with you in your weakness. I have been tested in every respect. And I know the intensity far greater than you know it because I never gave into it. Jesus resisted and he wants to teach you the ways of resistance. He wants to shepherd you through. He knows the way. And he wants to always be with you, never leave you, never forsake you. And, and you can say, well, that sounds nice, but do we see any evidence that, that that's an actual thing, that that's true in, in our real world? And I'd say, yeah, read the book of Acts, specifically read Acts chapter 7, and you'll read the story of a guy named Stephen. A man named Stephen who was, a, uh, who was pressured by the surrounding world to renounce Christ and to follow the trends and popular opinions of the world. Stephen was pressured to, to, to renounce Christ because if he didn't, they would stone him. They would kill him. And he didn't just survive that encounter. But with Christ, remember what he did? He looked up. He fixed his eyes up into the heavens and he saw Jesus. And, and it says Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. This isn't a guy just getting by, merely surviving the threats of the world. This is a man thriving. This is a man who, just like Jesus, looked at his persecutors and said, God, I don't feel bitterness toward them. Forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And how could he do that? How could he have such unquenchable joy and delight? How could he do it? Because he was looking at Jesus. 
That's it. Listen to Jesus. Look at Jesus. That's how you weather the storm and navigate life and survive the testing. And that's how you have joy. That's how you experience delight and desperately depending on Jesus. Realize that God is waging a holy war. And and the reason he's doing it is to have a relationship with you. He's not just fighting sin because sin's bad, though it is. The reason he's fighting is because he wants you. He wants to envelop you into the eternal oneness of the Trinity. You're the wife of Jesus. So Jesus says, I don't want to just have you in heaven. You know, you've been a bad boy, a bad girl. And if, if you follow Jesus, you know, you'll, you'll squeak into heaven. No, that's not what it says. It says you will be situated in heaven amidst the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. You will enjoy the eternal oneness, marital union with God forever. Because he loves you. He treasures you. And that has to become your obsession. That's how you wage the war. You get in on the joy of God to fight for the bride and body of Jesus Christ. Because it's God's delight. And you are a member of of the Godhead now. You're the wife of Jesus. God says, I want you to enter my joy. And in order to do that, you have to fix your eyes on Jesus, who, though he he was sinless, he came to be sin for you, to take your curse, to take the wrath of God. And realize that in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But there is one who did. There is one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning the shame, and he has now risen and ascended and seated at the right hand of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would compel us to be obsessed with with you. That's what you mean when you tell us to be fixated. We will fixate on something. We will obsess over something. And so... We see in scripture that you want to shepherd us. You want to captain us and guide us through the war zone of this world. And you don't want us to be scared. You don't want us to be ruled by fear. You don't want us to be dominated by what makes sense to us. You want us to listen to you. You want us to constantly look at you. And in that way, you want us to experience your joy, the delight that comes with desperately depending on God. And so we ask that you would author that and perfect that in us and compel us to to follow you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might and strength. We pray this in your name. Amen.